Welcome to Orphans No More, a media extension of Justice for Orphans, a ministry dedicated to rally the church for the cause of the fatherless, inspiring, educating, and equipping believers to care for vulnerable children, and supporting those who have heard and heeded the call of James 127. Here's your host, Sandra Flack. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is Romans 8.37. Welcome to Orphans No More, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children in crisis through adoption, foster care, and kinship care. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. I apologize again this week for the sound of my voice. I am still recovering from COVID. I'm on day five of not being able to taste or smell, which is super annoying. And I have a sinus infection uh, going on at the same time now. So, but hopefully, prayerfully, I'm on the mend. Um, I know last week's episode may have been a little rough. My head has been super fuzzy from COVID too, so I hope last week's show made sense to you, um, and I hope I'm making sense to you today, but as they say, right, the show must go on, and I can I can record podcasts in isolation, so it's, uh, it's it works as long as I'm up and at them, so I'll probably need a nap later, but here we are. So today, I'm thrilled to have Debbie Osborne as my guest. Debbie is a social worker turned lawyer who has worked with youth serving organizations for more than 40 years. Starting in her teens, Debbie served as a camp counselor, then went on to become a juvenile court probation officer, group home parent, criminal prosecutor of crimes against children and litigation attorney advising youth serving organizations throughout the United States. Her most important challenges, however, have been parenting foster children and stepchildren. She's never had biological children, but has collected seven children and 10 grandchildren along the way. Debbie has put the lessons that her children taught her in her recent book, Raising Other People's Children, What Foster Parenting Taught Me About Bringing Together Blended Family. All right, please welcome my guest today, Debbie Osborne. Hey, Debbie. Hey, how are you? I am great and thrilled to have you on with me today. We just had quite a conversation before we even hit record, so we decided to let our listeners actually listen to what we're talking about. Oh, and that's quite a resume that I read, your bio. Clearly, you've always had a heart for kids, especially kids from hard places. Where do you think that comes from? Where did that start? I, I think it started in my childhood. My parents um, always had a heart for at-risk kids. And I, I think some of it may have been because they they came from um, not rough backgrounds in the sense of, of what we think about today. They weren't particularly trauma backgrounds, but, um, you know, they grew up in the 20s and 30s when nobody had anything. And um, my, my grandfather couldn't read or write. And so my parents always um, just had an understanding 
understanding of, of kids who are growing up in hard places. And they raised us um, with that. We just got used to being involved in youth ministries and camps. And um, my both my parents um, gravitated towards jobs in the juvenile justice system. And so um, I think once you get into those fields and you start connecting with at-risk kids and, and kids from hard places, it, it becomes more than just a, um, a a label or a title, and you just you just set up relationships and start caring. Hmm. And clearly, you have a caring heart. Uh, we met at CAFO a few months back through our mutual yes. friend Jody Tucker, uh, and I got a signed copy of your book, um, "Raising Other People's Children." What Foster Parenting Taught Me About Bringing Together a Blended Family. I love that title. And this is such a great book. Um, I was so intrigued because I'm an adoptive mom, but I'm also a child of divorce. My parents divorced when I was little and my father abandoned the family. So you really shine some wisdom and valuable insight on the topic of raising other people's children. And I want to dive into your book a little bit and start off in chapter one. You start with such a nugget of truth that I think we often forget. Um, You say, we are not the people who are supposed to be there for our kids. So would you share a little bit about that invaluable perspective? Okay. Well, I I learned that when I was foster parenting, Um, my journey as a foster parent, um, I I was a a single person working um, as a a lawyer and serving as a foster parent at the same time. Um, I just... you know, I never found a free weekend to get married until my 40s. <laughs> so, so a lot of these um, lessons that I learned, I learned um, from working with my foster kids and and failing and finally listening to them usually was the process by which I, I had to learn my lessons. And um, I went into it the same attitude a lot of foster parents go into, which is, um, I'm going to be a great parent, I'm going to rescue these kids, and they're going to recognize how wonderful I am compared to their biological parents, and they're going to be grateful, and life will be um, wonderful happily ever after. And I was really shocked when I discovered that's not the way kids' minds work. They are connected on a on a primal level um, to their biological parents. And it's at a level that defies logic. It's not reachable by logic. It, it is. That's why I call it a primal level. It is pure emotion and instinct. Um, no matter how wonderful we are, they want to fix their um, biological family. And they all want to have um, a, a, an intact biological family. That That's mm-hmm. what they want. And no matter what our society and media and culture try to tell us about kids, that is a huge loss for them when that intact family breaks up. Mm-hmm. And um, even though by all um, rational measures, they're better off without a drug addicted parent or an abusive parent or whatever. Um, but, but you know, kids don't see it that way. Now, some of them will want to leave abusive situations, but by and large, um, all the, that they want is for their parents to quit doing those things and to still have a relationship with their parents. And right. so... 
um, from the kids' perspective, we, we're not the people who are supposed to be there. If the world worked the way it should, I would not know any of my kids. And right. that's just a, a realization that that we just have to accept that. Um, and it, it it's not a bad thing. We tend to think, oh, I don't want to be anybody's plan B. But we are plan mm. B for these kids. And um, and that's OK. Yeah. You know, as long as we, we recognize okay it, it and work with it. Yeah. Um, the, and, and you know, it, it doesn't matter what we feel about. It. It's like the law of gravity. It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We have to work with it. Right. We have to work with it. Yeah. Yeah. You also address the fact that loss and trauma change our children. What have you discovered about toxic levels of stress in kids from hard places, the kids that come in through foster care? Well, the the toxic levels of stress, um, it, it, it's the analogy I use is um, physical system, uh, physical immune system. We we know, for example, um, that we don't want our kids raised in a completely pristine environment because it doesn't develop their immune system. Um, as I like to joke, kids need to to eat dirt and sprain their ankles. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's good for them to have a certain level of stress of their immune system. And that's that's what the principles of vaccines are. You give kids a, a manageable level of stress and it builds their immune system. However, if you drop kids down in a measles ward, that doesn't build their immune system, it completely overwhelms it. So our psychological systems are the same way. We need a certain amount of grit in the gears and a certain amount of challenge in order to develop problem-solving skills, in order to develop a strong self-image. We need to overcome and accomplish things. It's just sort of the, the way our psychology works. But toxic stress or constant levels of high stress, on the other hand, will just ramp up our child's psychological immune system. It will keep that fight or flight, that fight, flight or freeze reaction that we all have. It will keep that always at DEFCON 10 Mm -hmm. and they never get any relief from it. They're always having to look over their shoulder and look around and the world becomes a very scary place. And that toxic level changes their ability to react. So, Mm. so when something normal happens, they, they overreact because they Mm -hmm. just go from a 10 to an 11. Right. Um, whereas, whereas kids without that toxic level of stress will go from a two to an eight and then back down. Um, so that's a lot of, of understanding that the kids who grow up with with this level of stress, um, they're they're always um, they're just always on edge. Um, and I've I, I posted something on my blog no it's coming out on my blog soon um about some interesting studies that are showing that kids with anger management problems and and other issues it may not or uh, kids who who come from traumatic backgrounds it it may not be creating anger in them like we've always thought oh the kids have an develop anger and and um then they express that anger everywhere else 
that actually what may be happening is it's attention issues because the trauma and the stress are are swallowing up so much of their resources um, that they don't have any resources left to pay attention to instructions or mm-hmm. relationships or what they're supposed to be doing. And then when they get in trouble, they just react. And it's not so much trauma as it is a reaction to not having known what was going on. And, and it literally um, blindsides them because they don't mm-hmm. see it coming because right. they, they don't have the resources to pick up on um, subtle um, clues that, that kids yeah. without trauma learn to pay attention to. Yeah, I see that exact same thing in, in my in my youngest son who's 16 when and he's he's one of those that's always at DEFCON 10, like no matter what. And he had spent the first five years of his life in an orphanage. Um, and so and then he came to us. So a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. a lot of loss, a lot of fear. You know, we learned about fear and building trust and all of those things. But everything is always DEF content. And then when COVID hit, his whole world completely spiraled out of control because suddenly he can't go to school. Suddenly his routine is completely different. There's all this unknown. Um, And and he's, you know, so we've had to, and our our regular listeners kind of know the journey that I've been on with him, but even riding in the car has always been very stressful for him. And, you know, he'll sit in the front seat with me. And even we just, we just came home from someplace the other day and just he's, he's, on red alert the whole entire time and I've never been in a car accident ever and he's he just is f- afraid at all times of what the other cars are doing and how fast I'm going and I should not be so close to that car and just constant constant he just it, it's just this disproportionate level of stress in the car where most kids aren't even really paying attention to what's going on around them outside of the car they're on their device or their you know whatever right. but it's just that constant constant you know red alert at all times he's hyper vigilant at all times about everything and and the amount of resources it takes to pay attention to the speed the other cars the distance the this that and the other and and i have found this um you know fortunately one of the 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 things about um marrying late in my 40s um and and developing relationships with my stepkids um is is i had made not all, but a good chunk of my mistakes before I, I um, came into these kids' lives. But I um, realized that that they, you know, they were never abused. Um, they didn't have the level of trauma that my foster kids did. They managed to, to you know, one, one parent, my husband, provided a, a, a good foundation for them. But there was still enough chaos there mm-hmm. to cause its own low level of stress. And, and it shows up in a lot of different areas. I've seen, for example, in their relationships, um, they, they make a lot of the same they all make the same mistakes because they're normal. What feels normal to them in a relationship mm-hmm. is chaos. Yeah. And um, it, it's it's not necessarily pathological type levels that, that would, would get a mental health diagnosis, but it still is a level of stress that, that, is, that causes problems with divorced mm-hmm. kids. And I, yeah, I think we normalize sure. divorce way too much in our society. Yeah. We, um, 
A lot of it is sort of like what I call the the, the COVID lockdown theater. Um, you know, you need lockdowns and quarantines for the sake of adults, but kids don't need them. That The science right. is pretty clear on that. Kids do yeah. not need these measures. But we're still doing it because it makes us as adults feel better. And I think <laughs> divorce is the same way. Yeah. We convince yeah. ourselves the kids are going to be okay, not because they're really going to be okay. I mean, the, the science all shows they're not going to be okay. Right. Um, but we do it to make ourselves feel better about about our life choices. And right. uh, and again, understand, I, I, I never um, advocate staying in an unsafe relationship. There are a lot of relationships where the only choice is to leave. Um, but I don't think there's as many of them as we adults like to tell ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I hear you on that. Um, now, I'm I'm a mom of five adopted children, one kinship, four international. Two of my kids are diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. Two probably should have been. And I believe they were on the FASD spectrum. Um, studies have shown that 86% of kids in foster care have an FASD. Most are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. They get a whole host of other labels, um, which really come under the umbrella of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Many of the primary characteristics look very similar to those of kids with trauma histories. So we can kind of get a little bit cloudy. The dismaturity, sensory processing issues, uh, food problems, uh, language and speech delays, slow processing pace, uh, learning and memory problems, abstract reasoning issues, executive functioning problems. All of those things are primary characteristics of an individual with an FASD, but they also are very similar with what kids with trauma backgrounds um, have. So Debbie, what has been your experience over the years with kids prenatally exposed to alcohol um, out of all these kids that you fostered for so many years? Have you, have you recognized FASD? Did you ever receive any formal training? No, we never received any formal training, and um, I, I never had a, uh, worked with a child who had a diagnosis of FASD. Now, there's some that that when you look at the symptoms and because of the overlap, they I'm sure I I parented kids who had FASD. We just didn't know it. Um, one of the problems working in foster care with with an agency is. Um, you don't always know about the kid's history. And um, sometimes the caseworkers aren't paying attention. Sometimes the records don't all make it. Sometimes caseworkers don't know. Um, it, it, it's very hard um, when, when, you're, when you pick up a child in the middle of their, you know, you just sort of join their history and become a part of it uh, later in life uh, or later in their lives. Um, there's a whole lot that, that went on that you just don't find out for a long right. time. Right. So um, I, I have just always focused on trauma. I've, I've never um, had a child that was diagnosed with the specific FASD trauma. Yeah. I have to say your little guy that you mentioned in the book that you gave the hammer to, I love yeah. that story because my, my youngest son, who's now 16, um, he had a love affair with a hammer too. Like he, it, that was, that was, and, and still to this day when he is super stressed and has to do some kind of a release, he will go, we live in, we live on, on like a lot of wooded acres. We live out in the middle of the country. So he right. will take a hammer out to like a tree out behind my husband's garage and just bang on the tree 
Like he yeah. just has to bang on that tree and then I'll know. And that, that was like, that was probably about a week into when COVID first hit in 2020. He's home mm. from school for about a week. And when it started looking like we weren't going to be going back to school, that's when I knew he was under major stress because that is something that he only does to release major stress so but but he's always loved to to, to pound and bang on things he's very sensory seeking and so when you told that story about the little guy and how you let him use the hammer and you gave him the nails and 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 it became this productive outlet for him to be able to do that I loved that story oh yeah that was just something I just stumbled into by and and that I guess is an example of, of one of the lessons I learned by I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any preconceived notions. I didn't have any resources for, for a child, an active child that age. Um, and so I, I was forced to listen to him. Mm-hmm. And he liked banging on things with the and hammer. He liked banging on things with a hammer. Yeah. So. Love it. Love it. So I found traditional parenting does not work with kids with FASD or kids with trauma. Um, I know FASD is a a brain-based disability. We know that trauma does impact brain development. Um, Parents have got to learn brain-based parenting tools. Um, I focus a lot on, with with my boys especially, because they are diagnosed FAS, I always have to stop myself and think, you know, can their brain actually do what I'm expecting them to do, right? Right. and I set my expectations accordingly because I want them to be successful. Um, I want them to learn life skills and so on. I, you know, I'm committed to their success. You talk about commitment in chapter four. Uh, the title of that chapter is Commitment is Stronger Than Love. What have you learned about commitment to our kids along the way? Because it can be hard. Oh, it, it can be incredibly hard. Um, and the, there's there's two flip sides to that. One is it, it has to be a one-way commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so many of us are going into this because we want to set up relationships with our kids. And then and then we get upset. Uh, the, the, the thing that I hear most often from from foster parents or, or kinship care is that, that, that these kids are just ungrateful. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't pay attention to all the sacrifices I'm making for them. Uh, well, no, they, they won't understand the sacrifices that you're making for them. Um, and biological kids don't understand the sacrifices. A part of that is, is um, just what they're capable of understanding. And, um, and, and to some extent, you know, kids are supposed to grow up not knowing about everything that goes on behind the curtain. Um, if, if they know too much about um, how much it takes to pay the electricity bill and the water bill, and, we, you know, we, we call that neglect because they, they, they are deprived of, of um, the resources that they need. So uh, just, you just have to get rid of the idea that kids will ever be grateful to you. Mm-hmm. That, that is not, you just have to lower your expectations. You're, you're not in this because you're going to ever get anything back from these kids. You are in this because you are um, willing to give and give whatever it takes to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the the flip side of that is all healthy relationships, all healthy commitments have boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so you have to set healthy boundaries on those commitments. Um, 
But, you know, my ego is not a good boundary. My feeling appreciated and accepted is not a good boundary. Um, the, the boundaries I, I have to set are, are what do the kids need? What accountability do they need? What, um, what is safe for them? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the kids right. that I can't keep safe. I, I, I have to dis- had to disrupt those placements, which is sort of like the, the most terrible thing you can do for a child is, is add to their trauma. But on the other hand, I, you know, I have to keep them physically safe. Right. So um, it, it, it's tough um, I, I talk about one-way commitments, um, but but the commitments are not unlimited. Um, mm-hmm. You know, unconditional love is one thing, but but unconditional commitments are uh, they're just not safe. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, for example, my, my husband and I um, I use this example in my in my book, and um, because I think all of us can relate to it, which is my husband and I um, we made a, a, a commitment to um, love each other and stay married. Well, to stay married, maybe not love each other, but to stay married <laughs> until death do us part. You know, um, and and we believe strongly in that. But we both know that if one of us becomes abusive or starts running guns for the mafia. Um, then our marriage is over because it's not an unlimited commitment. Um, But, you know, I I love my kids and I love my husband and I will continue to do so until the end of time. But I have there are times when I have to say to my kids, "I, I love you. I care about you. You're going to a place where I cannot help you. And I hope you come back and I will be here when you come back. But in the meantime, you have to go on without me. And no, I'm not giving you any more money. Yeah. Yeah. Safety. Yeah, for sure. Safety. Those boundaries. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, in Chapter 5, you address self-care um, and our need to build a support network, which is vital. I love this quote where you say, traumatized children often are black holes of need and we need to find ourselves and we will find ourselves desperately needing adult friendships to recharge our resources. So yes. for many years, you were a single foster parent. I can't even imagine how you were able to do that and be a lawyer at the same time. Um, share, share with us, Debbie, how some ways that you've taken care of yourself. How have you taken care of yourself and done that self-care thing over the years? Well, the um, w- one of the most practical ways was I signed up with an agency that had respite homes available so that um, at that particular time when I was a foster parent, I, I was a, a prosecutor, which required me to every so often, I think every two, one to two months, I had to be in trial for a week um, away from home. Some of them I could commute back and forth, but, but some of them it was a three hour drive away from home. So I, I signed up with a um, an agency that had um, a actually that's how I got involved with that agency was I was one of their respite homes before I went into long term care. Um, so they gave me the, um, the the resources that I needed to be able to take care of a child and at the same time have another um, home for them to go to that, that on a regular basis um, that it, you know they could establish a relationship with with that other home and that mentor. 
Um, not every agency um, it, it has those resources, but uh, I just highly recommend agencies that use resources and or respite care and, and understand the, the, the process of respite care. Then informally, I just developed a network of friends um, that I could spend time with who understood a, a lot of them weren't doing foster care themselves and, and would never have been interested in it, but they were um, available to, um, to, you know, to talk to me, to go to dinner, to um, to, to just vent. Um, my brother and sister lived in a different state, but they were still available by email and telephone and and I, I was and fortunate in that over the years my brother and my sister have, have been my best friends and so so we do have a close family in, in that respect. Um, when it came time to actually needing help, I was able to develop a, a group of friends that uh, one time I called a friend and said, look, I'm, I'm driving back from a trial and I, I my daughter is complaining um, about um, abdominal pain. Can, can you take her to the emergency room and I'll meet you there? And um, as it turned out, she had gallbladder, ended up having to have emergency gallbladder surgery and that sort of thing. So um, another time um, I actually had one of one of my kids had aged out and had had wanted to come back and live with me and I'd already made a commitment to go overseas with a friend and I said well um sure you you know you she was um like I said had aged out and and I said sure you you can stay home but I I talked to another friend and made sure that there was someone to check in on her and um I gave that friend my ATM card so that there was some check on how much money the kid <laughs> was using to buy groceries. Um, and so for each, you know, I, I I always made sure that I didn't overburden my friends. I didn't use the same friends for the same request. And mm -hmm. so, I, you know, you spread it around. Um, you can get individuals to do small things for you and then... Um, you know, you, you can um, get them to, to help with a lot of different things um, yeah. once once you develop that safety network. Yeah, it's definitely safety. vital. Yeah, yes. vital to have support and, and help around you for times like that. Um, chapter seven is called Engineer Logical Consequences of a Child's Decision. Now, honestly, I wrestled with this chapter at times because as a parent, oh, I know. Of it's, kids, it's the most controversial. I know. Well, but with, 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 with kids with FASD, their brains do not learn very well from consequences. Um, mm -hmm. brain, a brain prenatally exposed to alcohol can't necessarily process cause and effect. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, my son, who's, who's now 18, when he was 17, um, he he did not understand how a bank account worked. He felt like, well, if you put money in the bank, the bank takes your money. So right. when he started over the summer, he got a job. So he was making making money. So he had all this money in his wallet and we kept telling him, you need to open a bank account because if you lose that money or if somebody steals it from you because you're you can't carry all this money in, in your wallet. He was very opposed to the idea of a bank account. So... Of course, he lost his wallet right. with like $1,200 in cash in the wallet and his driver's license. 
So, of course, to me, I'm thinking, you know, on one hand, this is a valuable life lesson, right? You know, he's right. never going to not he's never going to do that again because who wants to lose all that money? And, you know, we were able to get the driver's license replaced, of course. But in the end, this is how his brain worked. He was like, well, at least I got the driver's license replaced because I can't be without my driver's license. And I'm like. That was the easiest thing to replace. The twelve hundred dollars is gone, you know. And even then, when we uh, then 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 I I made him like we're going to go to the bank. You're gonna we're going to open an account together. You'll have a debit card. You have an app on your phone. You can always see your money. The bank doesn't keep it forever. So he had um a, he graduated high school. So he had gifts, some money gifts from people, and he had some checks. So we were going to open the account by depositing this money in that account. And he said to the bank teller, now, when I come to get money out, are you going to give me these checks back or will you give me some cash for them? So like that's that's where there's just, you know, they don't easily learn from, you know, these natural consequences. And I've learned over the years that when I instituted consequences like early bedtimes or, you know, um, you know, grounding and things like that a lot of times these kids didn't learn from consequences that I assigned, although I totally agree with allowing them to experience these natural consequences. Um, But it it is, it's, it's it's a hard one with some of these kids. Um, Now I, I love this story that you tell about your son who wanted to quit school and you allowed him to learn that staying in school was a better option. Can you can you tell that story? Because I think that was a great way to teach that lesson. Well, and, and I think that story um, illustrates several things. Um, one of the things that, that, that I, I talk about, and, and when you talk about giving kids early bedtimes or those kind of things, those are consequences that that we engineer, that, that, that come from us and that right. we impose. And those don't work very well because we just become the authority figure and the kids just look at us. So for me, the key to logical consequences is letting the kids experience it without our fingerprints on it. Right. And um, again, safety is always a concern. Um, The analogy, the the illustration I used is, um, you know, if you you have a kid who forgets his school lunch or forgets his lunch money, um, most kids, they'll learn from being hungry all day. A child who has food insecurity, it's not a particularly safe consequence. So you have to you have to work with them on another level. So this particular child that I had was he hated school. He had gotten to the age where he he could legally quit and he he was just insistent he wasn't going to put himself through school anymore uh, through the the torture and the trauma. And you know, we all told him that, that it was a bad decision, but again, he, he words don't penetrate. Right. They, exactly. They just you know, uh, we th- we think we're being eloquent and what the kids are hearing is the wah, 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 you know, right. That, that you hear on the Charlie Brown. So I bit my tongue and I just said, OK, that's fine. But the rule in my house is that you have to be in school or you have to be 
contributing to the um, upkeep of the house. Um, sometimes I would say you have to pay rent. I usually don't like for kids to pay me money because it just makes me an authority figure. What I have done with with um, older teenagers uh, and and currently we have two son two adult sons living with us now. Um, I just give them one of the utility bills. And um, if it doesn't get paid, then it's between them and the cable company. I, I had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, again, it keeps my fingerprints off of it. Um, so I told him, you're, you're, you're going to have to have a job in order to pay one of the bills. Um, because I, I don't think you really want to live without electricity. But, you know, I, I, I'm not paying it. <laughs> Um, because if you're not going to be in school, then you're not going to sit around the house. You have to, to be contributing. So that that was the rule. And I, I took him to um, all the job interviews he could get. I helped him um, look for jobs. I walked him through how you interview. I wanted to... Um, make it as successful for him as possible again so that he couldn't blame me for whatever happened um and of course no one's going to hire a, a, in that state it was 16 a 16 year old without a, a high school diploma um, they uh, one who's not in school and he he got frustrated and had trouble finding a job and fortunately ran into enough employers who said to him call me when you get your high school diploma um mm-hmm. you got a lot going for you but i'm just um, i got people with high school diplomas i'm going to hire them i'm not going to hire you and because um he couldn't find a job he was sort of forced back into going back to school but also he had heard from someone who was not me (laughs) and he had had hit the reality of what the real world is like for someone without a high school diploma yeah so um, you know that wouldn't work for every kid but again the whole point is to to let them face consequences and and that was one of those it was safe because i wasn't going to kick him out of the house um he he still had a place to live he still had a much safer safety net than he would have at 22 Mm. but um uh he he was able to see how the world works in a way that he could not argue with right he learned it he learned it himself he learned it himself yeah i love that now let's go to chapter eight resilience requires structure and connection after adopting all of my kids learning about trauma um, after they came home and my husband and i learned about tbri trust-based relational intervention and all of that um, we learned all about connection And you mentioned in chapter eight about finding ways to reassure children that somewhere there's someone who cares about them. Um, That's why being a foster parent is so important, right? Letting kids know there are adults who care about them. So that, that was important in chapter eight. But actually, let's go to chapter nine, dealing with people who are supposed to be there. Because I can relate to this with our with our first child who came in, she was a kinship care, a kinship placement. So we had to deal with her mentally ill grandmother for about three years. And it was, yeah. it was a nightmare. But, um, you know, that's a lot of times what foster parents or potential foster parents are a little bit worried about is dealing with those biological parents, right? Share with us some of the ways that you have learned how to deal with biological family. 
Well, again, the, the first thing um, is to just uh, recognize sometimes it, it is what it is. You know, I, I hear stories of foster parents who who are in uh, reunification situations and they manage to set up good relationships with the, the, the parents of the kids and um, that they can work together for the best interest of the child. I, I've never been able to do that. And um, I've, I've never found enough admirable in in my foster kids' parents, and um, you know that 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 may be a, a failure of imagination on my part, but but it it, it is what it is. Um, even my my stepkids' biological mother, she seems to be a very nice person, but we, we are very different people. We don't have anything in common. We we do have something in common. What we have in common is we both love her kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you recognize that um, that you have that in common with parents, um, that that needs to be enough um, mm-hmm. to to uh, to figure out a way to um, maybe not work with them, but at least not get in the kids' way. Um, that was the other thing that that I realized as a as a foster parent and a, and a step parent. Um, especially foster kids, when they're 18 and they're out of the system and, and they're under, under nobody else's influence, first place they're going to try to go is try to reestablish, not always, but 95% of the cases, they're going to try to reestablish um, the ties with their biological family and their biological parents. Right. And um, so the sooner I recognize that fact, the, the better able I will be to, um, to, to keep my relationship with my kids. Um, and so my job is to help them have as help, healthy a relationship with their biological parents as they can. Um, and again, that's the key, safe and healthy. Um, mm-hmm. When kids are, are older and, and have more options, um, you know, you, you can um, you can facilitate more. Once our kids were driving and, and had their own way back home, I didn't um, have quite as many restrictions on visiting as I did before. Um, and and it, it shows itself in a lot of ways. You know, you, I always blog every year around Christmas time about, about do we help our kids get presents for their biological parents? Well, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that. That's part of part of my job for um, for younger kids. You know, once they became adults, they're on their own. But but for younger kids, when, when I was parenting them, um, it, it's it's part of my job to help them um, grow up and become an adult who has a good relationship. So that um, just is part of understanding we're not the person who's supposed to be there. Um, mm. That um, you know that they'll they'll forget us on our birthdays and Mother's Day and whatever because kids do that. Mm. Um, it's uh, you know it, it's it's not my job to remind them and, and expect them to to remember me. Um, it's my husband's job, but it's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> Aww, well. That's like, we'll, we'll get to chapter 10 here as we wrap up um, the chapters. Um, embrace the power of plan B, right? And I want to read the opening paragraph, if I can, there, because I thought it was so good. Um, it, you wrote, a few years ago, I realized that all of the important relationships in my life, aside from my biological family, have come my way because I was someone else's plan B. 
My husband did not want his prior marriage to break up and all of my children would have preferred to have their biological families remain intact. I came into their lives only because their preferred plans did not work out. Fortunately, I also realized that being someone else's plan B has been pretty wonderful. So Debbie, what, what's been wonderful about being plan B? Well, the relationships have, have been pretty wonderful. Um, you know, I, I, I benefited from the mistakes that other people made because I, I have these kids in my life and um, I, I never will um, downplay how, how difficult it was. And, and, you know, two of our kids don't speak to us, so it, it's not always a success. But um, or success is the world, as you know, the world sees it. We we tend to count it. But um, but I I had these relationships, um, and the ones that that still last are still wonderful. The ones that um, haven't lasted, that they, they were great for a while. And you look back and you count up and and you think, well, you know, would would I have done something differently would i have from from my perspective um would i have avoided all the heartache well yes but as in all relationships in avoiding the heartache you would have yeah i would have avoided the um the joys of it too Mm. and so um in in my case i i would still be a single person with two dogs and, you know, have a fun career. Um, But that's not how I wanted to live my life. It's not Mm. what I want to have accomplished at the end of my life. So um, these are, these relationships are just um, the, the, they're, they're, they're wonderful relationships. You know, I can sit down and chat with my kids about this, that, and the other, about whatever's going on with their lives and listen to them and just enjoy their company. Um, and, and even the kids with trauma, even the kids who are having difficult lives, even the ones who are making really, really stupid decisions, (laughs) um, the, um, the relationships are they're valuable and worth having and worth hanging on to. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. The book is Raising Other People's Children, What Foster Parenting Taught Me About Bringing Together a Blended Family by Debbie Osborne. Uh, It's a very helpful resource for adoptive foster kinship and blended families of any kind. There's also a helpful discussion, uh, discussion questions in the back of the book that go with each chapter. Debbie, where can our listeners find your book? Um, You can find it on Amazon or RaisingOtherPeople'sChildren.com. Oh, love that. And you said you have a blog that you blog regularly at. Where can we find your blog? Um, That is at otherpeopleschildren.org. So, or debbieosborne.com. I I spell my name funny, so it... it, um, may have to put it in the show notes. But I will definitely. We will put we will put links to everything in the show notes. I assume you're also Facebook and Instagram. Yes. Wonderful. So we'll make sure our listeners can find you and find your book um, so that they can they can also enjoy um, what I've enjoyed reading and, and learning from. So Deb, as we close, would you share an encouraging word with our adoptive foster and kinship caregivers who are listening? 
Um, yes, I would just say you you have to you have to take the the, the long view. And, and as a Christian, um, I, I have to uh, um, come as close as I can to taking the eternal view. And mm. um, there are even when you feel like you're an absolute failure, um, there are still things happening um, behind the screen that, that you may not ever see. But um, there is value in in trying and working with these kids. And um, at the end of the day, it is worth doing. Mm. I agree. Hear, hear. Debbie Osborne, thank you so much for faithfully raising other people's children, for writing your book, which is an amazing resource. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. I hope you were encouraged. Be sure to let us know that you're listening by subscribing to Orphans No More and also by reaching out to us. You can email me directly at sandraflackjfo at gmail.com. I love to hear from our listeners. You can also reach out through our website, justicefororphansny.org. And you can follow my family's adoption journey uh, in my book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It's available wherever you buy books. And if you order from Amazon after you read it, please do me a great favor and leave a review. If you'd like a signed copy, which includes a special gift bookmark, you can order from my website, sandraflack.com. And there you'll learn more about me. You can read my blog to adoptive foster and kinship parents. You can contact me for speaking opportunities. My website is also connected to our justicefororphansny.org website. So wherever you go, you'll be able to find all of the above. I'd also like to give a shout out to our Care Portal County sponsors, Tri Nuclear Corporation and Bishop Boundary Construction. These businesses care about children and families in crisis, and they help us to be able to do what we do. You can also check out our website where we have an entire resource page dedicated to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, and we want to help you to stay FASD informed. So please check that out. And my blog, again, our website is where you will find everything. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, as well as we have a Justice for Orphans Instagram and Facebook page. I'm so grateful that you tuned in today. Grateful that you spent your valuable time with us. I'm thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to Orphans No More, for sharing what you've heard and praying for vulnerable children everywhere. We hope you are inspired to walk out James 127 in whatever way God calls you. For more information, visit justicefororphansny.org.